In 2003, a bizarre bank heist shocked the small town of Erie, Pennsylvania. The case involved a pizza delivery man, Brian Wells, who walked into a bank with a bomb locked around his neck and a series of cryptic instructions. What followed was a twisted scavenger hunt that ended in tragedy, leaving investigators puzzled and the public horrified. What really happened that day? And who was behind this diabolical plot? In this video, we'll dive deep into the case of Brian Wells, exploring the evidence the suspects, and the theories that continue to haunt this unsolved mystery. From the Netflix documentary that shed new light on the case to the controversial Hollywood movie that sparked outrage, we'll examine the impact of this crime on popular culture and the legacy of its victim. So buckle up and join us on a journey into the mind-bending world of the collar bomb robbery. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to a brand new episode of The Casual Criminalist. As always, hello there. I'm your host, Simon Wambas here. One of my writers of this case, Matt, writes me a script all about the collar bomb robbery. And normally, you know, sometimes I'm vaguely familiar with this, but I've seen the whole Netflix documentary on this, so I kind of know what happens. But uh, it's going to be fun to learn more. Uh, even if you've seen the documentary, I'm sure, like, Matt, yeah, Matt's definitely going to mention it. So, uh, yeah, that'll be part of the story today, and I'm sure you'll learn something new. Anyway, I've never read this before, but like I said, I'm slightly familiar, so let's just jump in. Brian Douglas Wells was born in Warren, Pennsylvania on November 15th, 1956. Now, not much is known about his life before the events of our story today, but we do know that in 1976, when he was 16 years old, he dropped out of Aries East High School and went to work as a mechanic. From there, we flash forward several decades, where we find Brian, once again, now 46, and living in Erie, Pennsylvania. According to those who knew him, he was just a regular guy, an ordinary Joe Schmo, if, if perhaps a touch on the odd side. He didn't have that many friends, spending most of his free time at home with his cats. According to his landlord, Linda Payne, quote, he liked to help people. He used to get up, get his breakfast at McDonald's or somewhere, and a newspaper, and come home and hang out until it was time to go to work. He was very shy. He took the hubcaps off his car because they were too shiny, he was a perfect tenant. Speaking of work, Wells had worked as a delivery driver for Mamma Mia's Pizzeria on Peach Street in Erie for 10 years. And August the 28th, 2003, just seemed like a normal day for Brian. A day of driving around, delivering pizza pies to folks around town until 1.30pm rolled around. At that moment, the phone in the pizzeria rang, and the owner of Mamma Mia's, a man named Tony Ditmo, answered the phone. <laughs> like, Mamma Mia's. It's like, if you were making a movie and, and you were like, yeah, there's a pizzeria called Mamma Mia's, uh, people come back and be like, dude, it's too cliched. You gotta name it something else. <laughs> That's like Giuseppe's Pizza. Come on! Do better, you hack. This call was made from a payphone at a nearby gas station, and Tony wasn't able to understand the customer, so he passed the phone to Brian. Taking the order of two pizzas for delivery, he put down the address as 8631 Peach Street, an address several miles from the pizzeria. Wait, is that the same street as the pizzeria? That is a long ass street. After the pizzas were made, Wells got into his vehicle and made the drive to the given address, which was the transmitting tower of WCTV at the end of a dirt road in a wooded area. Now, you're probably wondering, well, Matthew, this man seems like a nice and ordinary fellow, so why are we following him on this delivery run? Well, the reason is simple. Because this man's life was about to come crashing down in the most tragic and mysterious of circumstances. Because from here, we jump to an hour later at 2.30pm and the location we find ourselves in is the local PNC bank in Summit Town Center, a shopping plaza just south of Erie. They called the, they called the shopping center the town center, even though it's south of the town. <laughs> <It's> some, <laughs> 
wacky marketing right there. That's the sort of place. Uh, oh my god, the other the other weekends. I can't remember what I was going. It was like maybe it was a DIY store or something. So I put it into Google Maps. And I'm like, okay, off we go. And I drive and I'm like, where the hell is this place? And I pull into a tiny car park and it's like the corporate headquarters of the DIY store. And I'm like, why am I here, Google? You tricked me. You need me. Why is the first result? I don't care if it's the closest one to me. Obviously, I want to go to the store. I don't want to go to like the corporate headquarters on a Sunday. What's going on? The tellers were going about their daily work and folks were waiting in line just a normal day. That is until a white man with a balding head wearing a white t-shirt with the word GUESS emblazoned on it and carrying a shotgun roughly disguised as a walking cane into the building. That man was Brian Wells, wearing a t-shirt with GUESS stenciled on it. Either means you're like doing some work on behalf of that, uh, is it the Joker? It's not the Joker. Who's the, the Batman villain with all the clues? Is it Clue? I don't know. Look, I don't know enough about comics. You're either working for that guy or you've been shopping at the store GUESS. How did he get here? What could have happened in that hour to lead us here? Well, today we hope to unravel the events of that day as Brian made his way to the front of the line, handed the teller a note and exposed something underneath his shirt, something that everyone in the bank took notice of as soon as he walked in the door, something noticeably bulging around his neck and chest area. Brian Wells was wearing a collar bomb. Why is a collar bomb something that exists? Well, I, I, beyond the Netflix documentary, which I saw, why would you make why is there who's who who thought of how should we you know bombs aren't bad enough let's make one that we can attach around people's necks what the f On the note handed to the teller, it stated the following. Gather employees with access codes to the vault and work fast to fill a bag with $250,000. You have only 15 minutes. It's quite a lot of time, I feel. $250,000 is not I mean it's a large amount of money. What I meant to say is like it's not a physically large amount of money because a million dollars fits in a carrier bag, which is nuts. Like, because $10,000 is like, it's like this thick. You've seen it in the movies. Maybe you've even seen it in real life. I don't think I've ever seen that much cash in like real life, but like, it's not that thick. That's what she said. So like a million dollars is only like a hundred times that. It would fit in like a small little part. So 250K, you carry it in your hands quite easily. It was after reading the note that the teller saw Brian lift his shirt, exposing the bomb. It tried to remain calm, but the teller called out, Audrey, the code word for an armed robbery. According to the teller and other witnesses, Brian seemed rather calm about the entire ordeal, even going so far as take a lollipop from the jar on the counter and sucking on it as he waited. Dude, you're wearing a bomb and robbing a bag, and you're just like, do 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 do, just having a chill time, no big deal. Also, I, I, the person who called out the word Audrey, I'd just be like, yes, sir, right away. And I wouldn't use a code word. I'd just be like, okay, I'm just going to give you the 250 grand as quickly as possible because then you might leave. If I, if the police arrive, there's going to be a hostage situation. If they don't arrive, you're going to leave. Uh, you know, that <laughs> you're not going to stick around. So I would not call out the code word. And uh, I'm sorry, but the bank's insured and I don't give a about the bank or the insurance companies paying for it because I'm a clerk. Let's go. It was reported that one teller whispered for other customers to leave as quickly and quietly as possible, and as they did, Brian didn't pay them any mind. He didn't scream, he didn't raise a gun, he simply let them leave. 
as if he didn't want to hurt anyone. Soon enough, the teller returned to Brian and informed him that unfortunately they weren't able to get into the vault at that time. None of the employees on the site had the codes. All they were able to get for him was a bag containing $8,702. So they're coming up a little bit short right there. All the money they had in their drawers at that time. Once again, there were no threats. There were no gunshots. He simply thanked the teller and left the envelope behind before walking out of the bank, still sucking on his lollipop. Inside the envelope was a note for the police, as well as Brian's driver's license, as if to tell the police exactly who it was that robbed the bank. <laughs> okay. I don't remember that aspect of the, the documentary, actually. I, th- I saw this like a couple of years ago. I, I think I saw it when it first came out. It's been pushed so hard. I was like, yeah, I'm going to watch that. I think I saw it. I think it was off work. I think I was sick when I saw this. And I just watched the whole thing in like a day or something. <laughs> just sitting on the couch. It didn't take long for the police to arrive. About 15 minutes after he left the bank, Brian was spotted near a McDonald's. Loading the bomb around his neck, Brian was handcuffed and sat in the middle of the parking lot. Squad cars and officers surrounded him at gunpoint as the bomb squad was called. When asked by the police, he put the collar on him. Brian stated that four black men forced him to wear the device and rob the bank and that they'd provided him with the shotgun. Oh, he had a shotgun? Matt, you didn't mention that. Or did you mention it and I just didn't pay attention? I didn't realize he had a shotgun. That's intense. I mean, he's got a bomb, but a shotgun's like a menacing large weapon. You don't kind of like hide that in your pants and then walk into the store, into the bank and be like, guess what? I've got a gun. You're just rolling in there with a gun. Like you can't hide a shotgun. It's a shot. It's bi- Although I suppose you can saw them off, right? You see that in movies and they kind of tuck them under a jacket or something. To me, shotguns are massive things with long barrels. And told him that they would kill him unless he committed the robbery and completed several other tasks. This was, of course, a load of hogwash, but we'll explain that soon enough. The entire time, Brian remained calm and collected, doing everything he could to comply with the officers. He even asked if there was a way that they could take off the handcuffs cuffs as they were uncomfortable, or if they could go and find the key to get the bomb off him. <laughs> Can you remove these handcuffs? I wonder, while you're at it, is there any chance of you getting this bomb off? Because it's around my neck. And uh, it's a bomb. <laughs> Brian, what are you up to? 3.18 p.m. rolled around, and the bomb squad had yet to arrive, almost 20 minutes after they were originally called. And that's when it happened. The collar started beeping, and Brian started to panic. To quote, Why is nobody trying to come get this thing off me? I don't have a lot of time. It's going to go off. I'm not lying. Did you call my boss? Why are you calling his boss? Why is he calling his boss? The guy who runs the pizzeria? <laughs> I mean, like, yeah, listen, I didn't manage to deliver those pizzas because I got kidnapped. They collarbombed me and then told me to go and rob a bank. And now I'm in McDonald's parking lot surrounded by police and the bomb squad's coming. His boss will be like, what are you talking about? <laughs> what? what is going on? Did you smoke crack? The beeping became more and more rapid and the police didn't know what else to do. Brian simply sat there in the parking lot, begging for his life, begging for help. And it never came. Three minutes before the bomb squad arrived on the scene, it went off. The bomb exploded underneath Brian's shirt, blasting a hole in his chest about the size of a fist, burning his neck and the area around the hole. Police ducked behind their cruisers and Brian fell back in a heap, blood pouring out of the open wound. The police moved in, but there was nothing they could do. <laughs> they moved in thinking, oh my god, we'll save his life. Bro, a bomb went off that was attached to his body. What do you think's happening? Did you not see the hurt locker? Brian Wells died in the parking lot. State Trooper Lamont King stated that he went up to Brian, quote, his eyes just got real wide. Then they went to the back of his head, and that was the end of him. Soon enough, the bomb squad arrived, clad in protective suits. Part of the device was still around Brian's neck and hadn't been completely destroyed or sent flying off in the explosion. They confirmed that there were no other explosives on him before checking and confirming there were none in his car. Then the police found something else. Notes. Pages upon pages of notes. Looking through them, they were dumbstruck and horrified. All of the notes contained instructions and directions for not only the heist, but also for a way to remove the bomb. Brian Wells 
was on some sort of bizarre scavenger hunt. A scavenger hunt of death. The details in the notes were thorough but easy to understand. Brian Wells was to follow each of these notes going from point A to point B and so on. At the end of it all, Brian would be given the keys in combination to the collar around his neck. Using the instructions, the police got to searching. From the McDonald's where Brian was intercepted, they made their way to exit 180 on Route 79 North as the instructions indicated. There they found the next clue in a coffee can. The instructions would then have led Brian to the next drop-off point on 79 South. Arriving at the location, despite their best efforts, they never found another clue or set of instructions. But they did find something, or should I say, something found them. As they were searching, Officer King and several other officers noted a dirty blue minivan coming from the trees into the field. After a moment, though, the driver, who they couldn't see, stopped the vehicle. The minivan sat idle for a few moments, then suddenly backed off and sped off into the night to chase that van. Whoever's in that van definitely has something to do with this. So uh, maybe go, go get him. Because of the size of the field and the trees in the way, they weren't able to give chase. They weren't even able to get the license plate number. Okay, then. That's kind of a bummer. Officer King later stated... <laughs> Might be understating it a little bit there, Simon. <laughs> Trying to be a bit more sensitive. Officer King later stated, I figured whoever was responsible for leaving the notes was in that van, leaving the notes at both the drop-off points. Actually, that van always bothered me. We did our preliminary investigation and referred it back to the FBI, but the van was never mentioned again. Despite everything, one thing soon became crystal clear. Brian Wells was a dead man walking from the word go. Law enforcement got every piece of information they could about the route that Brian would have to take in order to get the column bomb off, and it was a foregone conclusion. On that day, Wells always set to go in one large circle around where the robbery took place, at each point getting new instructions. There was no possible way that he wouldn't have been stopped by the police and detained. There was no chance that he could have evaded them long enough to go around to get every note. This was now a murder case. To quote retired FBI agent and criminal justice professor Jim Fisher, it was a first-degree murder. This was an intentional, premeditated homicide. Moreover, it was extremely cruel in the way the crime was executed. He was a simple man, he was a good man, and he didn't deserve any of this. The investigation begins. While it started out as a local incident, the fact that it was a bank that was targeted meant the FBI was soon called in to work alongside the local police and the ATF, the Bureau for Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms. They entered Brian's house, blasting the front door off its hinges. Open up, FBI! <laughs> but, <laughs> I know this happens in real life, but you're, it's just always seen in movies and that one meme. The only thing of note they found was the names and numbers of a number of sex workers in the area, but more on that later. To examine the collar bomb properly and not risk setting off any additional traps the creator had placed, the ATF had to make a tough call. In order to get to the collar, they made the decision to decapitate Brian Wells. Oh my god. That's the best way you could do it? Jesus. They stated they had done so in such a way that was delicate and as respectful as possible. Um, so you removed it. We were very delicate and respectful. You cut his head off. There couldn't have been a better way of doing this? Jesus. But that reassurance went down with a lead balloon with Brian's family. His sisters and mother were especially disgusted and distraught that Brian's body was treated in such a way and that they weren't even able to have an open casket funeral. Okay, okay, I agree. This is not disrespect. This is... It, I mean, I don't want to use the word disrespectful because it's like they're just doing their job. But it is very morbid and it is very unpleasant. But if this was my relative who had been murdered by some mysterious, like, weird criminal... I don't want to say mastermind because it's not like the big... This isn't some big brain scheme. I would feel that I would want them to do that because they're already dead. 
And I don't know, I, I have this kind of like once you're dead, you're just a lump of meat sort of thing going on in my brain. But what I would want them to do is keep that bomb intact so they could get fingerprints and go and find the person who killed my friend or relative and then put them in prison for the rest of their lives. And if that involved cutting off my friend or relative's head once they were dead in order to do that, I'd be down. And also, we don't have open casket funerals, so we don't have to worry about that. It's a bit weird, America. <laughs> mentioned it before. Who's that? I asked the dead person. You want to go give them a kiss on the forehead? No, no, I don't want to look at them. I don't want to look. I don't want to look at the husk of their body. I want to have my memories not being their slab of husky meat. In regards to the collar, it was an intricate piece of work designed in a similar fashion to a police handcuff to go around the neck and then lock shut. Under the chin were a set of four keyholes and a rectangular section that contained two pipe bombs with kitchen timers. Several mechanisms were built in that would have made it nearly impossible to remove by the bomb squad, with several parts and wires there being simply for distraction and others being laid as booby traps to detonate the bombs should they be disturbed. So clearly, the device was created by someone intelligent. Do you have to be that big brain to make a bomb? I don't think it's that complicated, is it? Or am I just underestimating people? You, I mean, look, I'm not saying it could be done by some like someone who's a bit dim, but someone of average intelligence should be able to put a bomb together. Oh, when questioning colleagues at Mamma Mia's, Tony Dipmo told officers about the order that was taken. Going to the location stated in the call, tire tracks from Byron's car were found at the scene, and indents and markings in the dirt showed that there had been a scuffle. During the questioning at the pizzeria, officers talked to a man by the name of Robert Panetti, a friend and co-worker of Brian Wells and the only other delivery driver at Mamma Mia's. Robert seemed rather nervous and sought any sort of protection that he could, almost as if he believed the police thought that he was connected to Brian's death. Whether he was or not is unknown, as on August the 31st, 2003, three days after Brian Wells' death, Robert Panetti was found dead in his home by family members. Because of his connection to Brian, the police looked at his death and they confirmed that he had died of an overdose. It was ruled as an accident, but there are those who believe that it may have been a suicide in order to evade the police and their questions. As the weeks went on, the case seemed to take on a life of its own. The story of the poor man who was shanghaied into having a collar bomb put around his neck to rob a bank, only to have it blow up and kill him. It was big news, but as the days rolled by, the police and the FBI still had no leads on the case. That is, until a phone call came in that set the eyes of the authorities onto several people. A phone call to report a dead body. Another dead body? Okay. The body in the freezer. Ah, now this is... <laughs> I'll try not to spoil because I have seen that Netflix documentary, but now this begins to ring bells for me and I kind of know what's coming. But anyway, let's, let's just... Uh, no, I won't spoil. I won't spoil. I'll be careful. On the night of September the 20th, 2003, three weeks after the death of Brian Wells, a 911 call was made to the police. It was from a man named William Bill Rothstein, a handyman and part-time shop teacher. Known around town as an intelligent man, he also happened to live on Peach Street, less than a 10-minute walk from the site that Brian Wells was delivering that pizza to. Oh, and I'm sure that it was just a funny twist that he had an old, dirty blue van parked in his driveway. Right? Yeah, that doesn't sound like a coincidence. Also, a shop teacher is exactly the sort of person who would be able to put together a bomb like this, right? That's exactly the sort of bomb you'd think to make if you were a shop teacher. We call these people DIY teachers, not DIY teachers. DT teachers, design and technology was DT. That's what I think we call shop in the UK. Dispatcher, stay police, what's your emergency? Caller. At 8645 Peach Street, in the garage, there's a frozen body. It's in the freezer. There's a woman there you might want to pick up and question. Dispatcher, 8645 Peach Street? Caller, yes. Dispatcher, how do you know that? Caller, trust me, I know. Dispatcher, who are you? Caller, I'm the guy who lives there. 
Dispatcher. What's your name, sir? Caller. Bill Rothstein. Dispatcher. And what's her name? Caller. Marjorie Deal. D-I-E-H-L. Marjorie Deal Armstrong was a woman with whom he'd been romantically involved with on or off for decades, and he claimed that there was a body in his freezer which she was responsible for. Rothstein, sounds like you're responsible for it, mate, if it's in your freezer. That's your... <laughs> like, you know, he's taking care of it for her. Rothstein later told state trooper Rob Morgan that he was afraid of Marjorie, and when describing her, he held nothing back. Quote, she's extremely intelligent, extremely intelligent, manipulates people, oh yes. You know what manic depressives are? That's what she is. Bipolar swings so quickly one way or the other. When asked why he had the body in his freezer, he admitted that Marjorie had killed the man and asked Rothstein to store the body. When asked why he was now calling the police about it after helping her in the first place, he told them that she had asked him to dispose of the body by putting it through a wood chipper, which apparently was too much for him. <laughs> so no, someone came to me. Like, I don't know how, I don't, like, if your friend comes to you and says, can you keep a body in my, in your freezer? Jesus Christ. Holy sh**. Don't do that. Police soon arrived at Bill Rothstein's house, and it was overflowing with garbage. Rothstein was a hoarder, and his house was filled to the brim with empty boxes, dirty dishes, spoiled food, and old appliances. Officer King made his way to the garage, and his eyes caught sight of a black tarp hanging from the ceiling, concealing something underneath. Hoarding strikes is so weird. Like, it's such a... St I know it's like a mental condition or whatever that you want to hoard but it's very strange. People keep, like, dirty dishes and boxes and all. I feel like I'm an anti-hoarder. Like, I love throwing away. I love recycling stuff. I love getting rid of it. Like, if I haven't used something in a while, I'm like, let's get rid of it. Let's get rid of it immediately. And my, and my wife will be like, that might be useful. Do you not want to put it in the garage or something? And I'm like, nope, let's throw it away. Throw, throw, throw it. Can we burn it? I don't know. I just, I just, I like that. It feels like freeing to get rid of stuff that you don't use. He tore the tarp away and there was a freezer. Opening it, he found exactly what he had come for. The body of a man was lying in the freezer, wrapped up in plastic as if he was just another piece of meat. And he was soon identified as James Roden, Marjorie's boyfriend of over 10 years. He had been in there long enough that the body had become stuck to the side of the freezer. Oh my God, dude. It's like that piece of meat that you freeze in the freezer and then you find later it's covered in like frost burn. And it's like, should I still eat this? It looks delicious and it's a pretty tasty steak. And it's like, no, I probably shouldn't eat that. Although I found that I'm um, putting in those, um, uh, not the Ziploc bags, but what are they called? The vacuum seal bags that you use with a sous vide. Like putting them in that is really good and it never gets the freezer burn and it lasts forever. Although I did that the other day and then my freezer stopped working for some reason, came back and I just opened the fridge, opened the freezer and there's just uh, water pools out of it onto the floor. I'm like, oh God, and they have to throw everything in the freezer away. And it was so sad. There was so much good food in there <sighs> and ice cream. I had like, there was a deal on at the supermarket with Haagen-Dazs and I bought like three big tubs of Haagen-Dazs. They were still expensive because it's Haagen-Dazs and they were all melted. And I, oh, that's so sad. <laughs> Sorry, no one cares. Let's move on. You're not here for my ice cream stories. You're here for murder. In order to preserve the scene, the police had to take the entire freezer out of the garage to the crime lab, letting it dethaw for days before peeling the corpse out of the unit. Death was confirmed to have been caused by a shotgun blast to the head, and it had happened weeks before the bank heist. Jesus, that's a way to go. Marjorie Deal Armstrong was immediately arrested for murder. She tried to pin the blame on Rothstein, claiming that she had nothing to do with it. While investigating the house, police found what looked like a suicide note written by Bill Rothstein soon after it phoned the authorities. It specifically stated that his planned death which evidence showed had never been att even attempted, had nothing to do with the Brian Wells case. Yeah, sure, Bill. And I am Abe Lincoln. Why would you be like, uh, I'm killing myself and it definitely has nothing to do with that Brian Wells guy who you didn't think I had anything to do with? 
Marjorie was put in the back of the squad car and driven to the station for questioning. The entire ten-minute ride to the station, Marjorie was mumbling to herself, cursing out the officers and blaming the entire thing on Bill Rothstein, threatening to sue him and the entire police force over the whole affair. All right, lady, chill out. It's like, do you know who I am? I will end your careers. It's like, lady, you're just someone they found with a body uh, with a shotgun in the head. That <laughs> how do you think this is gonna go? They don't care. Bill and Marjorie. Born January the 17th, 1944, Bill Rothstein was born into a successful family, one who ran the famous Roller Cola bottling plant in town. I guess that's, uh, like, locally famous. He was bullied constantly in school and was an outcast among his peers. At times, they even called him a dirty Jew. Graduating from high school, Rothstein took several college courses and did well, but he ended up dropping out to work in the family business at the bottling plant. This seems to emphasize the fact that, according to friends, Rothstein was never one to finish things. It does seem that there was one thing that he wished to hold on to, though. One thing that he never truly let go of, and that was Marjorie Deal. Born on February the 26th, 1949, Marjorie Deal had a long and complicated history, even from the beginning. In her younger years, she was beautiful and charming, the type of girl who could get anyone and everyone to do exactly what she wanted. And on top of that, she was smart, described by many as an exemplary student in high school before attending Gannon University in Erie, earning her master's degree. But she had another side an unstable side. From bipolar disorder to schizophrenia, she had a cavalcade of mental issues. And it was this combination of looks, charm, crazy, and manipulation that drew in Bill Rothstein. The two of them started off a friend, something Marjorie didn't have that many of, but she liked Rothstein, perhaps because she had someone of similar intelligence to actually talk to. <laughs> you were doing a master's degree, isn't you? You're going to be surrounded by other intelligent people. Much of what is known about the intricacies of their relationship comes from Marjorie herself, and she certainly is a less than credible source. What is known, however, is that the two were romantically involved on and off during the 1960s and 70s. They were even engaged for a time before breaking things off. To quote, the one loss he kept on blaming me for was when I broke off our engagement. He said that's when his life started to turn around, and I felt badly about that. That was 35 years ago, and all these years, he's never been or lived with another woman. Seriously dated another woman or been engaged to another woman. She eventually became romantically entangled with a man by the name of Robert Thomas, and that's when things started to turn sour very quickly. In 1984, when she was 35, Marjorie was arrested for murder after she had shot Robert six times while he was laying on the couch. Oh my god. That is uh, making you extremely even more promising as a murder suspect. And how are you not in prison? It's only been 17 years, 18, 19 years since the, the previous you were up the, the, when you shot the guy. How are you out of jail? She pled not guilty and reasoned it was self-defense and it worked. Holy Somehow after being deemed psychologically unfit seven times, she was finally deemed fit to stand trial. Oh my God, guys, if they're, if they're like, okay, yeah, she's not psychologically fit. And then another person, 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 and then another person. But the fire, then another person comes along and he's like, nah, we're good. We're good. What, do you just keep trying? That doesn't seem fair. Uh, she was fit to stay on trial and she ended up winning a total acquittal. She managed to get married again to a man named Robert Armstrong, keeping his last name. Four years after she was found not guilty of murder, Robert Armstrong died of a cerebral hemorrhage, allegedly accidental. He was brought into the hospital with a head injury and Marjorie said that it had fallen in his head. Yeah, I don't believe it either. Yeah, me neither, Matt. No chance, allegedly, in my opinion and your opinion. And probably the opinion of many of our listeners, but it is just that, an opinion. Several men came into her life, and every single one of them ended up dead in some fashion. And that brings us to James Roden. Marjorie vehemently denied that his death had any involvement with the Wells case, both Rostin and her claiming that it was a dispute over money. 
The main theory is that James caught wind of the scheme and was going to blow the whistle on the whole thing, hence why he had to go. Marjorie murdered him at Rothstein's storeroom in the freezer and cleaner house of evidence for $2,000, and uh, when she asked Rothstein to dispose of the body once and for all, that's when he phoned the police. Oh, Rothstein, you're already in so deep, though, bro. <laughs> like, you're going to jail, even if you do grass on her. Or maybe you can get some sort of deal, but you're going to have to get a really good lawyer. With all of this under her belt, Marjorie Deal Armstrong was charged with the murder of James Roden. And as for Bill Rothstein, well, he was offered and granted blanket immunity in return for his testimony against Marjorie. Well, I guess he got that good lawyer, didn't he? He was asked to give the police a walkthrough of her house and explain the night of the murder, which he did. If Rothstein's own house was like a dump site, Marjorie's house was a sewer. Half-eaten food everywhere, trash as far as the eye could see, animal feces littering the floor. Much like Brian Wells, Marjorie also kept a number of cats, and I'm disgusted to inform you that the police had to remove at least two cat carcasses that were left to rot and decay in her home. That is messed up, bruh. After that, Bill Rothstein was allowed to live at home and live his life, all the while he denied any involvement in the case of Brian Wells and denied that Marjorie had any part in it. To the very end, he protected her, and it's safe to say that in the end, he still loved her in his own broken way. Then, as the months rolled by, Rothstein started getting weaker and weaker. Soon enough, Everyone found out why. Rothstein had developed an non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, showing diffuse large cell type myeloproliferative lymphoma. Okay, <laughs> that's a lot of medicine. I think that's a cancer, right? He was admitted to Mill Creek Community Hospital on July the 23rd, 2004, and was put on a hospice care, his body riddled with tumors. Well, there you go. The police and FBI came to him one final time, asking if there was anything he could give them if he or Marjorie were involved in the case of Brian Wells. Rothstein denied any involvement and passed away, on July the 30th, 2004, at the age of 60. To quote Professor Jim Fisher, who believed that Rothstein was the mastermind behind the whole ordeal, the son of a ended up winning. He died with all the secrets. He died taking the answers with him. He gets the last laugh in that sense. He escaped punishment. He escaped detection. That son of a ended up winning. He died of cancer, bro. <laughs> he didn't end up winning dick. He's dead. Marjorie Jill, Deal Armstrong was put on trial for the murder of James Roden, and in January 2005, months after the death of Bill Rothstein, she pled guilty, but mentally ill, to third-degree murder and the abuse of a corpse, and was sentenced to between 7 and 20 years in prison. Third-degree murder? Doesn't that mean, like, isn't first-degree murder worse than third-degree murder? She shot a dude in the head with a shotgun because he discovered them plotting, allegedly discovered them plotting to put a bomb around someone's neck. How is that not, like, the worst type of murder? What the f***? A complex and convoluted plot. But Matt, I hear you saying, this is all well and good, but what about Brian Wells? We've dealt with this new murder, but what about the collar bomb? Well, Marjorie Deal Armstrong and Bill Rothstein were both involved in the collar bomb plot. That much was obvious to all involved in the investigation. Evidence showed that they were seen together in a phone booth at a gas station at the time the call came into Mum and Mia's. Despite this, there were still a number of unanswered questions and blank spots, including their two accomplices in the plot. Floyd Arthur J. Stockton Jr. had been living with Rothstein at the time of the collar bomb incident. In exchange for his testimony against Marjorie, he was given immunity, despite being a convicted rapist of a disabled teenage girl and a wanted fugitive by the FBI. Well, give him immunity for this one thing if he's going to testify, but for the other stuff, holy sh he should just go to prison forever. Kenneth Barnes was a retired television repairman and crack dealer who was Marjorie Deal Armstrong's fishing buddy in late 2005. <laughs> some reason, I don't like imagine crack dealers going fishing. 
I guess they can, of course, it just seems a bit weird. In late 2005, he was already in prison for drug-related charges, but during a conversation with his brother-in-law, Barnes revealed his involvement in the collar bomb robbery and his knowledge of what had happened to Brian Wells. So, what exactly was this knowledge that he had of this terrible tragedy? Well, how about the motive? If you guessed it was all for money, you'd be absolutely correct. But there's an even deeper reason than that. Why would she need the money? The answer to that is even more money. And don't worry, it's as strange and crazy as it sounds. What, she needs this, like, seed capital for some other criminal enterprise? You see, Marjorie's father was Harold Deal, and he was a very wealthy man. He had saved up a great amount of money over his lifetime, and Marjorie got it in her head that she was owed the money upon his death. However, as time rolled by, and Harold saw her erratic and criminal behavior and the fact that she couldn't hold down a steady job, he made the decision to cut her off. He started giving all of his savings to friends and neighbors that he believed needed the help more than her. This, of course, enraged Marjorie. So, what did she do? Why, she contacted Kenneth Barnes and asked if he could assassinate her father for her. Okay. <laughs> Marjorie told Barnes that he would murder her father, but he denied this to the police, playing it off as a joke. Regardless, Marjorie organized a bank robbery in order to pay Barnes for the job. Oh my god. What are you up to? And how much does he charge? Didn't she want 250 grand? I'm fairly sure that a hitman isn't 250 grand. I've done enough casual criminals to know that... I don't know, I feel like like 20k? But then also feels really expensive. <laughs> I guess it depends who you're assassinating. She recruited Rothstein, who in turn enlisted Stockton. It was Rothstein who created the bomb and came for the heist. Um, I feel you're involving way too many people in your crime right now. There's like five people and we've barely gotten started. The question of whether Brian Wells was an active participant in the heist or a hostage remains unanswered. Some people, including those involved in the investigation, believe that he was an accomplice. This has angered Brian's family, who still believe that he was a victim. Is there any evidence to say that he was involved? It seems like he wasn't involved. Like, when that thing started beeping, he seemed to be genuinely alarmed. Um, so... Oh, although... Although, if he was told that it was fake and then it started beeping, that would he'd still be alarmed, wouldn't he, if they, like, double-crossed him? I'm vaguely remembering stuff from the documentary now. It was a long time ago. This brings us to a woman by the name of Jessica Hoopsick, a prostitute that was frequented by Brian Wells. She was one of the names found in his phone book mentioned before, and their relationship had evolved from just one of business into a true friendship. It wasn't until 2018 that Jessica came forward and confessed, confessed to knowledge of the heist and how Brian got involved. At the time of the incident, Jessica was hooked on drugs, and who just happened to be her dealer, Kenneth Barnes. In exchange for money and drugs, Barnes asked her if she knew a guy that would make a good gopher for a heist. In a drug-addicted state, she thought of Brian Wells, giving them his name and his delivery schedule. Jessica said that Brian had no advanced knowledge of the heist, that he was just going along with things in a need to please her and the others, and that she regrets what she did to this very day. They called Brian. Did she wait for, like, statute of limitations or something? Because 2018 is what? That's like 15 years after this all took place? What's the statue? I don't know. Is the statue limitations for like when people are dead? It doesn't matter. But whatever it is, like, why? Interesting she waited so long. They called Brian to the address from the payphone at the gas station. A scuffle ensued and the collar was affixed to Brian's neck. There's no turning back. And we know what happened from there. These people were willing to kill this poor, innocent man, all for money, just so this unstable woman could get her hands on money that she was never going to receive in the first place. Trials and denials. 
So where did they leave the investigation? Well, Rothstein was dead and Stockton had moved away and started a family by then, along with having been given immunity for his testimony. This left Marjorie and Barnes to take the fall, and they were charged with the Collarbone Bank robbery in July of 2007, with Rothstein and Wells being posthumously listed as co-conspirators. Sadly, Jessica Hoopsick had not yet come forward to help clear Wells' name, so his name continued to be dragged through the mud at the time. Marjorie was deemed mentally incompetent, so it took much longer to get her in court than it did for Barnes. On September the 3rd, 2008, Barnes pled guilty to conspiring to rob a bank and aiding and abetting, and on December the 3rd of that year, he was sentenced to 45 years in prison, though it was later reduced to 22.5 years after he testified against Marjorie. It's still a hell of a long time, isn't it? Two and a half decades, basically, in prison. Barnes seemed to enjoy himself in prison, having no desire to rejoin civilization, and being thankful for prison keeping you off drugs. Okay. How was prison? It was great! I loved it every minute! And he went to, like, bank robber prison, not like Jordan Belfort prison. <laughs> he spent the rest of his days in the slammer, and on June the 20th, 2019, Kenneth Barnes died from his long-term battle with diabetes at the age of 64. As for Marjorie, well, her day in court would come sooner rather than later, no matter how hard she fought for it to never come. From the get-go, she denied having any sort of involvement, even when back in 2005, she had fully admitted to providing the kitchen timers used for the bomb while trying to finger Rothstein as the mastermind. She admitted all of this while trying to cut a deal that would see her give them all the info she knew in exchange for her being transferred from the Muncie Correctional Institution to a minimum security prison in Cambridge Springs. Kind of played your hand a bit too early there, didn't you, Marge? Yeah, yeah. I don't know who was negotiating that deal, but they were doing a shit job. If it was you, it should have been a lawyer. And if it was a lawyer, it should have been a better lawyer. Or the police were super good, or whatever. But good, because you belong in prison. And uh, not like minimum security Cambridge Springs, which sounds super nice. Cambridge Springs. It sounds like a holiday place. Then, I'm sure it's not brilliant. But she obviously wants to go there instead rather than like big boy prison. Then on September the 9th, 2010, after two years of being deemed mentally incompetent, Marjorie Deal Armstrong was deemed mentally sound enough to stand trial. Marjorie would take the stand in her own defense, playing the victim, saying it was Rothstein's idea and that she was just a tool for him. She doubled down on Wells' involvement, doing her best to make him look as bad as she could. She even asked for a change of venue as she believed that she wouldn't get a fair trial in Erie, which was soundly denied. Despite her best efforts on November the 1st, 2010, Marjorie Deal Armstrong was convicted of armed bank robbery, conspiracy to commit armed robbery, and the use of a destructive device in a crime. Wait, she's not being... What about the murder? What about the murder? On February the 11th, 2011, ah, she was sentenced to life in prison to be served consecutively with the prison term imposed in 2005 for killing James Roden. Oh, right, okay. Okay, okay. No matter how long she stayed behind bars, no matter how many interviews she did, no matter how many phone calls she took, Marjorie never relented on her claims until the very end, even when it seemed all for naught. She never strayed from her story that Brian Wells was a part of the whole plan. The reason generally accepted is that if it came out that Brian Wells was not innocent, the state had every right to seek a murder charge with the death penalty firmly on the table. Oh, oh, okay, because she's saying he's involved, so she's not really murdered him? Holy shit, okay, well, I'm glad you're going to be in prison forever anyway. How long were you in prison for? Life in prison. Okay, yeah, well, that's good. <laughs> Never mind. It's all good. You're in prison forever. In the end, Marjorie Dill Armstrong spent the rest of her days behind bars, cussing out the guards and threatening to sue all the way to the grave. Do you know who I am? You're a jailbird. Pipe down. Marjorie Dill Armstrong died on April the 4th, 2007 from breast cancer at the age of 64. Wrap up. And there we have it. Tale of greed, conspiracy, bank robbery, and murder. 
All because an old deranged witch wanted to get her hands on money that she was never going to get in the first place. Marjorie Dill Armstrong was an evil one, and Bill Rothstein was so tightly wrapped around her finger that he created a device to kill a man simply because she asked him to. Kenneth Barnes only wanted money, and Floyd Stockton was no better. Although there is little information on him, he passed away on August 10, 2022, due to accidental acute respiratory failure at the age of 75. How do you have accidental acute respiratory failure? Whoops, a daisy. It's not like a car accident, is it? How does that work? Marjorie Deal Armstrong was a liar and murderer, and she did everything in her power over the course of her entire life to get ahead to manipulate those around her. She played the system, sued anyone she could, and did whatever it took to make sure that she got what she wanted. She murdered almost every man in her life that showed her any sort of love. Well, allegedly. She didn't get convicted for all of those murders, did she? Allegedly. I mean, she didn't. And it's alleged that she killed people. But I mean, talk about a black widow or whatever you call it. Was she married to them? Not always. So I guess it's not black widow. But you know what I mean, don't you? Allegedly. And when her father saw right through her and refused any sort of inheritance, she concocted this crackpot plan that sent an entire city into a tailspin of panic and confusion. Her actions were despicable, and her legacy will forever be remembered as the mastermind of one of the most notorious crimes in American history. Want to know the satisfying part? Well, let's do the maths. Originally, Harold Deal and his estate was worth about $1.8 million. After all the gifts and aid to those that he held dear, it had been lowered all the way down to less than 120000 at the time of his day, death at the age of 95 in January 2014. In his will, it was revealed that it left something to Marjorie, a measly $2,000, but the estate's obligation to pay outstanding medical bills before inheritance meant that she received nothing. Marjorie's greed and selfishness had been a downfall, and her father's last act of defiance was a final victory over her. So I suppose, get f Marge. This case was an international sensation, and it captured the fear and imagination of millions, and it still does. In May of 2018, Netflix released the four-part documentary series. Was it only four parts? I thought it was a longer docuseries. Oh, I guess it was. Evil Genius, the true story of America's most diabolical bank heist. Evil Genius, diabolical, I mean... I'm sure I've titled this episode, like, something super clickbaity, but that feels mega clickbaity, Netflix. It's a sensational documentary, it's one of the best I've ever seen, and it's one of the main sources of information regarding this case. If you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. Yeah, it's a great show. If you think you'd like if you'd like to learn more about this stuff, definitely go check that out. What I don't recommend is the 2011 film 30 Minutes or Less, a comedy movie starring Jesse Eisenberg, Danny McBride, Aziz Ansari, and Nick Swardston. The plot of the film is disturbingly similar to the case of Brian Wells, and its comedic twist is disrespectful. Why would you make a comedy about this, guys? That's not classy. The cast and crew had no knowledge of Wells or his death, but the screenwriter said they were vaguely familiar with the incident, making it even more concerning. Don't make a comedy out of a true crime story. That's not right. And as we bring this story to a close, let's remember Brian Wells. Despite the authorities and media's attempts to paint him as a member of a criminal gang, all reliable evidence suggests that he was a victim. He did not deserve to die in fear and isolation in that parking lot, the beeping of the bomb counting down to his demise. My heart goes out to Brian Wells' family, who are still grieving his loss. I also send my best wishes to Jessa Hoopsick, who gave birth several months after the incident and believes the child's father is Brian Wells. If that's the case, I wish them all the best and a lifetime of happiness. Rest in peace, Brian Wells. Yeah, well said. Classy ending, unlike that 2011 movie. Thank you, everybody, for being here, watching. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, if you're listening to this show, please um, leave it a review. If you're watching on YouTube, like, subscribe, and I'll see you next time. Seeking the truth never gets old. 
Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.